Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, this is Dr. Jim Doty, host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast. My guest today is a colleague, a fellow neurosurgeon, who sadly, in 2015, lost his sister to a nearly year-long battle with leukemia. Through this loss and his encounters with medical professionals along the way and his own experience as a neurosurgeon, he realized the need of integrating compassion and empathy into the medical field. He has been committed since that time to deepening and humanizing the doctor-patient relationship. He's written a book uh, called Grief Connects Us, A Neurosurgeon's Lessons on Love, Loss, and Compassion, which I would recommend for anyone who has been impacted by the grief and loss of a loved one. He has now become an advocate for doctors and patients to tap into their emotions with these life-changing experiences and to actually be present. I hope you enjoy our conversation today. Jody, it's uh, great to have you with me today, and it's nice to reconnect. One of the things we're going to talk about today is the nature of grief. And of course, all physicians on some level experience grief, secondary to the nature of their professions, of course. And also, all of us experience grief personally, as much as uh, we would prefer not to, as much as... um, We would like to think that we have some control over the world. Of course, we don't. And uh, you wrote a book about this. And maybe we can just start with you just telling a little bit about yourself and why you wrote this book. Well, Jim, it's an honor to be here, and I thank you very much for having me. I was basically a practicing neurosurgeon and thought everything, you know, things were going along fine. I thought I was a reasonably compassionate human being and that I did a decent job as a, as a doctor. Then my sister, Victoria, became ill with uh, acute myeloid leukemia, and she had a bone marrow transplant. She's younger than me, about two years younger than me, and she had a bone marrow transplant. And after about a year of pretty rugged hospitalization and illness, she died. And I found in that time period, I was really having a difficult time taking care of patients and separating myself from their problems and realizing just how awful it is to be a patient. It never really, you know, even though I had taken care of people, I kind of had cultivated this sort of distance of impartiality and detachment. And that got punctured. I had developed emotional armor to protect myself from sadness and from grief. And it just kind of um, cut right through it and rendered it useless. And then a year and a half later, her husband, Pat, ruptured an anterior cerebral aneurysm and died of a brain hemorrhage. And I was his healthcare power of attorney and I had to withdraw his care. He was, uh, you know, discontinued treatments and, and let him die. 
and that orphaned their two sons. And that whole experience was completely disruptive for me and forced me to reconsider being what being a doctor is, what being a patient is, how it feels to be on the receiving end of healthcare, how things that I had perceived as being, you know, well-intentioned and compassionate really weren't or weren't as effective or as meaningful as I wished. And I kind of rethought my whole role and it sort of, it just opened a, a, a huge door for me, which I have, I have gone through and I have it just has kind of awakened me to how we need to do a much better job, how we're not sufficiently compassionate as physicians, how health systems aren't sufficiently compassionate. So it's kind of this, been this cascade and uh, has been a very powerful experience for me. Well, it's interesting how you sort of perceive that on some level you have not been as compassionate as perhaps you thought you were or uh, meant to be. And do you think this is a manifestation of just the nature of how we're trained, the nature of neurosurgery, individual, combination thereof? Kind of yes to all. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I mean, I I think, first of all, so one of the parts of my path has been to really look at how we're trained. I think that we receive very little training in how to communicate effectively with people, how to address the emotional Uh, issues surrounding an illness. You know, we spend so much time talking about pathophysiology and talking about, you know, disease processes and the mechanics and the surgical procedures. And we spend no time training, how do we talk to families? How do we come across? How do we communicate with them? How do we experience our own grief and our own loss and not be destroyed by it and also not have to wall it off from ourselves? So I think part of it is the education process that we go through is dehumanizing. You know, one of my uh, friends said, well, it starts in medical school when you cut into a cadaver. It's basically you are being dehumanized. You are being um, taught to have some distance. And I think you need distance to be an effective physician. But the problem is we're not taught how to navigate that. You know, one of the powerful tools I learned was about emotional agility, which is the ability to navigate powerful and dif- and difficult emotions and not either try to wall them off or suppress them. One of the things I realized is that is that we think we can block these things out and in reality we don't. You know, we just we we sort of um, push them away thinking that that protects us and in fact it ends up being corrosive and gradually kind of destroys our spirit. Um, so I don't think that our our methods of of managing grief and detachment. We, we, we aren't trained. We need to be trained. We aren't taught how to communicate effectively. I think there's also some self-selection in neurosurgery. You know, we're kind of uh, odd people, really. You know, you, you sort of go and say, I can do something. It's sort of the ultimate hubris, right? I can do that. I can cut into your brain and you will be fine. And, and so I think there is an element of it that is kind of professional. But at the same time, I think a lot of people want to be more emotionally connected or and discover, or at least I have discovered, a lot of power in facing these things, which I had previously avoided largely out of fear. And that actually by connecting with patients, I love what I do now much more than I did before. And that kind of has been eye-opening that by having emotionally connected, meaningful conversations with patients and families, I can still go do surgery. I can still do a good job. I can still run the gamut of emotions and still be present and available and connected. And I get much more satisfaction from what I do with those changes. And I also think I'm a much better doctor than I was. Well, I think that's true. I, uh, just to make a couple of comments, I think in some ways neurosurgery self-selects oftentimes for people who either are not 
connected to their emotions or have spent a lifetime pushing them away. And it's sort of interesting if you look at psychological discussions about shame as an example. You know, many people always push it away, but it never goes away. And then when you're weak, suffering, have some issue going on, it will magically push its head out there and you have to face it again. And I think this is in some ways the nature of powerful emotions that can, if you want to use the term destabilize you, uh, people have developed techniques to avoid that. But at the end of the day, I would say to be authentic, you have to face them, live with them, and be comfortable with them, but have the ability, as you point out, to have emotional agility. And I think that's really important. It is unfortunate, though, that I think the nature of medical training oftentimes pushes this narrative of you have to be perfect. If you make a mistake, you don't want to face up to it. And also that if you get close to patients or really show your emotions, that that will put you at risk and you won't be able to care for them properly. And so I think all of that is true. Let me ask you a question. You know, Kubler-Ross, who wrote a number of books on death and dying, she talked about the grieving process as stages, but some people debate that. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, I don't know from a, from a personal uh, standpoint. You know, I was looking at her writing fairly recently, and um, for me, I do think there's certain, there are certain elements of, of denial and um, how— you know, I kind of, it's sort of enmeshed with my sister's illness that she was denying that her, her own mortality. And so I was watching her die and kind of dealing with her end of life and then also dealing with my own, the own, the repercussions to spill over into mine, how I dealt with my own grief. I do think that I have gotten to a level of acceptance, which I find to be uh, something that was very elusive initially and I couldn't really get there. And I now feel. I don't want to say at peace. You know, it's funny because I was, I was talking to a patient today and, and his wife had died many years ago. And I asked him, you know, I was talking to him about it. And, and one of the things I would never have done before was bring it up. You know, you kind of avoid it. But I talked to him. I said, you know, tell me about your wife's death. And he started crying. And it was it was it was many years prior. Uh, so these things, the idea that you get through grief or that you leave it behind, I don't think exists. You know, I think you you live with it always. It's always a part of you, and it always and it changes us. But one of the things I wanted to say in my book is that that is a powerful impact on you. That is a, that shapes you as a human being. But I also think that it turns out to have great value. Like the person that I am, having gone through the grief that I've gone through, is not the same person that I was, and I'm glad for it, frankly. You know, because I I feel that. We kind of um, chase after illusions and sort of pretend, and it it, it kind of cuts you down to um, the quick. I, I, I don't know if I answered your question, but, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I think you did. Uh, maybe you can just mention the title of your book, and so our listeners can actually uh, purchase it, because I think it's a wonderful book, and I think uh, there are a lot of lessons in it that— uh, perhaps can teach all of us not only about your story, but also how to deal with these difficult situations. Here's a, uh, the cover, and it's called Grief Connects Us, A Neurosurgeon's Lessons on Love, Loss, and Compassion. How has the response been to your book? And I mentioned that because, as you know, I, I wrote a book a, a number of years ago, and for many people, it was extraordinarily powerful. And I still receive emails from people who were 
profoundly affected, I have to assume that you're in the same boat in some ways. I hope that it is more widely read, but the responses I've received have been extremely powerful. I've had some patients and family members and people I know who have written me these wonderful emails about how Uh, It's helped them manage their own grief. It's helped them navigate their own losses. And that's a very rewarding thing. So I I feel very positively about it. And I feel that it is useful from the standpoint of helping people manage their own grief. It is also, you know, in this time of COVID and all the death that we've been going through, I think it's something that we're all facing. And then what I tried to do was to balance between medical practice and, and patient care, you know, that basically that it's a book for everybody. It's to bring us together. It's to make doctors and patients kind of speak the same language and share some of their same insights. Because a lot of times, you know, when you're taught to be dispassionate and disconnected, you don't really share of yourself. And so I felt that my journey and my sister's journey, my sister wrote a, a journal about her illness, and that's in the book. And my journey kind of helps people connect with what it's like to be a patient, the decisions they have to make. And then I went and I interviewed other uh, physicians and also other patients, So and also gave some ex- ideas for how we can change things. So I think there's a lot there that has, that has value. I've been teaching in medical schools and teaching medical students and also residents, and I've really enjoyed that. And it's, so it's definitely opened doors for me. One of the things that's also done is kind of created a community for me. And I think one of the things that's great, like you wrote a, a really nice... Um, uh, blurb for the book, and I'm grateful to you for that. The, but one of the things that's happened with this is I have met kind of like-minded people, and and that's taken me on a on a journey I never would have thought possible. Well, you know, that's actually one of the wonderful things I think about, if you will, writing a book. One of the things I found, which I did not appreciate, because frankly, I wrote the book, and my intention was, well, if my story could help one person, I'm happy. But I think this is the same with your book, is that you speak about universal truths and uh, experiences that everyone has. And I think that makes it highly relatable. And it's, well, certainly, obviously, you're a neurosurgeon and there's that component of it. You're fundamentally a human being who's having their own struggles, which have been tempered, I think, by your profession, but you still have to deal with fundamentally the same issues. You know, I'll tell you, I read your book and I really liked it. Um, And also the whole kind of one of the things that sort of opened up along this journey has been the mindfulness and and meditation and trying to find um, greater compassion. And that opened some doors for me and taught me uh, some things that I found very useful. So thank you. Oh, well, I appreciate that. And, And in some ways, though, we have a tendency to beat ourselves up. And whether, as an example, and I'm not speaking for you, but I'm intuiting, if you will, uh, you started having these realizations about, if you will, your own lack of sensitivity related to this issue. And it sort of, number one, forced you to recognize that, but I think also, hopefully, allowed you to be more kind to yourself and not beat yourself up. Right. I think that's a key part. You know, if you look at neurosurgeons um, and talk about their external um, behaviors, one of the things is is generally perfectionistic and very critical, very self-critical. And that's a very tough burden to carry, you know, because you want to be perfect. And yet, in fact, I've, I've never actually performed a perfect surgery. You know, there's always there, there are these goals that are elusive and unattainable. And I think to look and say, 
to do your best and to feel, you know, I think part of the sadness is admitting failure, admitting error, not avoiding it, but facing it. And I think you're right. The whole kindness to yourself is a key part of this. If you can't be kind to yourself and you can't be compassionate to yourself, it's hard to be compassionate to others. Yeah, I I think that's really an excellent point and certainly one that I have stressed in my own work is because if you're not kind to yourself and remain hypercritical, you look at the world through the lens of being hypercritical and and judgmental. And I think, unfortunately, there are a lot of individuals who do do that. And, you know, you're talking about this idea of perfection among neurosurgeons. I'm sure if you've talked to 80 neurosurgeons, every one of them thinks they're in the top 1%. <laughs> <laughs> of practitioners. Plus, and uh, Lake Wobegon, right? Every, everyone's above average. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Lake Wobegon, exactly. And it's interesting, right? Because the nature of, uh, I think, becoming a neurosurgeon, which is highly competitive, of course, plays into this idea that you're better, and that's why you got the position. I'm sure, though, you have experienced, and I have the reality that some of the individuals who are the most arrogant and who have no self-awareness are actually some of the worst neurosurgeons that there are. Completely agree. And they're, they're dangerous because, you know, one of the things is if the worst thing you can do is dehumanize a patient. You know, when you take, uh, it's kind of a sacred trust. You take a patient to surgery and you are representing their interests. You're kind of keeping, you are them or their interests while they're asleep, right? And if you don't live and breathe that, if you don't have compassion for your patient while you're doing your surgeries and every single thing that you do has to go through that filter, if you suddenly objectify people or treat them as kind of units of economic gain or things like that, then you see just really evil things happen. And I think it's absolutely terrible. So I think that, I think that the Yes, you need the emotional agility and the connection to be good to yourself and to be a truer person and to be truer to your patients, but you also need that um, lack of arrogance and a, a humility and a, a genuineness to be effective as a physician. Because, you know, so many times I think it's an amazing thing. We have such an awesome privilege to be able to take care of patients. And the trust that people put in us is just staggering. And it is, it's a real gift. And, and to be able to take a patient through surgery and get them through it and have them recover and restore them to function is, it's, I can't think of anything that's more cool than that, actually. No, uh, you know, I agree with you. I, I, and I think, I'm sure you'd agree, you know, being a physician and a neurosurgeon is a privilege and an honor uh, that we're endowed with the permission to be of service and care for others, which I think is an extraordinarily high calling and take it very seriously. And it's interesting, as you point out, some of these individuals, you know, they look at patients as a profit center and there's no humanity and they'll do the most horrendous things and absolutely not care or have any self-awareness about it. I'm sure you're probably like me. I can't think of so many instances where I could have just done this a little bit better, if I'd been a little more patient, if I, whatever it is, X, Y, or Z, and, you know, every complication, every failure, you know, is is burned into my brain where I relive it and think, well, what could I have done? Versus, you know, I knew an individual or know an individual who, you know, within about three weeks, he killed three people because he was rushing, not paying attention, and it was like water on a duck's back 
no impact, you know, whatsoever. And I mean, for me, if I had, you know, done that, I would have been destroyed. And, you know, it's hard to imagine that there are individuals who are that way, though. And I will comment not to go off on neurosurgeons or medicine per se, but these are the same people who will hide things, alter medical records, do whatever to avoid uh, having to face the reality of their own failures. You know, it's interesting. I had a situation where I aired and nobody knew except for me. Mm-hmm. And I reported myself. <laughs> now, the, the, on the one hand, you go, wow, that's really honorable. I will tell you, though, on the other hand, it is very challenging uh, because, you know, there's certain things that are done if you admit error. And I'm sure you have these, uh, what is it called? Um, peer review or the... Well, it's a peer review, but it's a thing you do before to look at all the different areas where there might have been a systemic mistake that caused you. Like root cause analysis. Uh, root cause analysis, yes, yes. So here I go in front of this room of probably 20 people from all these different things. And the, it's run by a physician. And he says, well, Dr. Doty, could you explain the situation and what you perceive went wrong here? And I said, well, first of all, there's no reason to have this because this is all my fault. <laughs> there is no root cause. <laughs> I am the root cause. I made an error. It's my fault. I accept full responsibility. And, you know, that's the way it is. And the guy comes up to me afterwards, the physician, he says, you know, I've done this for 20 years. I've never seen a physician admit fault for anything. And literally, I've been through these hundreds and hundreds of times, anything. It is never their fault. It is the nursing staff. It is the equipment. It is the anesthesiologist. It is this. It is that. Never does somebody come forward and say, I am fully responsible. This is my fault. And actually, it made me feel very sad, right, in the sense that you know as well as I do, this happens literally thousands of times, and no one comes forward and takes the hit. But the problem, of course, is if you come forward and take the hit, then the system works to punish you, right? <laughs> do you know that there's I, – I forget the, exactly where this was, but there was a guy who was very good at self-reporting error and reported very readily, and initially they investigated him and then de- determined that actually the actual bad outcomes – in his, under his care were far lower than other people because he was willing to admit error and reported it and ever encouraged everyone to report errors. There are actually fewer errors. So a lot of this whole kind of just turn the other cheek, just ignore it, pretend, you know, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a, it's a bad slope. No, no, it's a slippery slope. And, and this is why I think it's important that, you know, there's this idea of metacognition, right? We're, you are looking at what you are doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think, uh, you know, all of us, uh, actually, whether you're a physician or not, should sort of step away for a second and look at your behaviors and your actions. And, uh, And it's one of the hardest things to do because, of course, it shows, like all of us are, we're not perfect. And it's a very hard thing to take when you have been in highly competitive environments where, you know, perfection is the standard, but of course it's not possible. Right. Right. 
I think that's absolutely true. You know, it's funny when you, again, take a step back and think about all the negative loops that we put in our heads, you know, where we say we criticize ourselves and there's this kind of constant um, error reporting or, or sort of, you know, oh, you're not doing as well as you can. And I do think that the whole kindness and decency, the people who trained me, like Dr. Hoff was a, a professor at Michigan. Buzz Hoff? Yeah. And he was... He was such a great man because he was he was very kind. He was very genuine. He didn't try to pull the wool over on anybody's eyes. I actually remember him. We had an, uh, a bad complication. I trained at Michigan. We had a bad complication. And he went and talked to the patient, just shut the door, went in, sat with her for a long time, told her everything that had happened. So he's the same kind of honest guy. And the thing is, the kindness, the humanity, that's what people want. That's what they want in their physicians. That's what they crave. And when you look at these systems, because I think you can focus on the, the physician behavior, but I also think it, there are system issues of, you know, how hospitals are run, how how we uh, task out compassion rather than having compassion be a genuine kind of outflowing of the of the activity, you know, you really look at how we're doing things, we could be doing so much better, you know, and, but it does start with that same kindness towards self. And if you have kindness to self, if kindness to others, you suddenly have a much different relationship with patients. No, I think that's true. I, I, I think we have, uh, unfortunately, a entire medical system that fails the patients and fails the physicians. And it's very sad because one is the profit motive. If profit is your driver, that is the driver. If it's not focused on patient-centered care, and unfortunately that's the case in so many situations, and it's an embarrassment because you know there is a narrative in the United States that we have the best medical care in the world, and frankly, it's laughable. Uh, as you know, if you look at the other nine of the top 10 industrialized countries, the other nine have socialized medicine which, of course, benefits everyone. Now, is that to say everyone gets Cadillac care? No, but it makes sure everyone gets Ford or Chevy care, which is okay. And if you look at the efficacy of the system we have, you know, we're at the lowest level of patient satisfaction, the worst in almost every measure of quality of care, and the most expensive, which, how is this even possible? Well, it's all, it's all focused on last-minute repairs of broken people. You know, you see this with, like, cardiac catheterizations. Of, you see what, this with, with what I do. You know, I'm if I do a lot of spinal surgery on people who are morbidly obese and have had no, you know, proper self-care and um, exercise, and, you know, then everything fails. So then you spend a lot of money at, at kind of a late stage rather than much earlier when we can prevent these things. And one, one of the things that I found really striking recently is that is that um, there's a lot of uh, the transactional nature of dealing with health systems, but insurance companies, but, you know, the whole kind of process of I'm dealing with claims authorization where I have to, you know, fight to, I have an idea, I establish a rapport with the patient, I tell them what I want, you know, what I think would be the right thing to do. And then I have to fight with people who tell me, that I'm doing the wrong thing. They don't even know the patient. They've never even met the patient. And they throw these kind of cookbooks at me and I have to jump through these hoops. So it's it's it, it's kind of exhausting and it's sort of um, depressing. And what I, I've been doing is I've been going to Honduras with um, an organization called One World Surgery where we do spinal surgery on basically people without resources. And these are people that have no access to care and 
you know, we look at people, maybe you've had a problem for a week or a month or something, you get fairly immediate retention. In Honduras, I take care of people who have had, say, you know, slipped vertebrae for nine years, you know, constant, unrelenting pain, no pain medication, no options for them. And then you go. And what's amazing to me is I look and I go, okay, it's free care. So there's no kind of fighting with insurance companies. And everyone who goes is volunteering and is committed to a common vision and a common purpose, which is that together we are going to take care of these patients and do the very best thing we possibly can. And what's amazing is it's it's a truly a gift. I, I am just shocked. There was an ophthalmologist who was there who burst out crying when he was talking about how he had restored a, a seven-year-old's vision from blindness. The first time this kid ever had seen before. And I had patients who walk out of the hospital like two hours after surgery and you just go such a gift and such an amazing opportunity to really, you know, I feel burned out from what I'm dealing with here. I go down there and you think, well, fewer resources, lot, you know, not as much options and yet so much more satisfying in terms of providing absolutely needed care. I'm sure you've heard the term moral injury. You know, we have a system here and I guess we're going off of grief. <laughs> But we'll get back there, uh, or maybe this is part of grief. Moral injury, yes, is part more, of it's, yes. Uh, Burnout uh, is part of that too, right? You know. Yeah. Oh, no, ab- absolutely. But you know, we have a system that one is the electronic medical record, and you know, I'm sure it's probably the same with you. Is you know, we're demanded to see X number of patients, which frankly I refuse to do, and I can't tell you the number of people who either will tell me. Well, I went to see the doctor, but all he did was type on his typewriter and ask me four questions and threw up the x-rays and said, I need surgery. And sometimes without even examining the patient. Sure. Or the other is a nurse came in and asked me a bunch of questions. Then the doctor came in and put my x-rays up and told me I needed surgery. And you sit there and you go, how is that even possible? I, how could, I, I don't even know how to do that. And I have never actually typed on a computer while I interacted with the patient, ever. But I will tell you that I'm probably the lowest paid neurosurgeon. <laughs> and the reason is, is because, again, you know, if you've had somebody who's been operated on three times and 150 x-rays, I don't know how you do that in 20 or 30 minutes. It's not possible for me. Or I always tell people, you know, my job is to be a doctor, not a neurosurgeon. And what I mean by that is I see a lot of second opinions, and I would assure you that at least three-fourths of them don't need surgery at all. And so if they don't need surgery and you're paid to do surgery, you don't make the big bucks. And even in my own department, I had a colleague say to me, I said, why did you do that 360 procedure? I don't even understand the logic of it. And he said, I needed to maximize the RVUs, which of course, as you know, is the way in which we bill. So you maximize the billing points so you get paid more. And I, I mean, I was appalled. I was appalled. But that's that's what we were talking about. If I'm... Um I don't want to drive the bus over your colleague, but that's that's the, that is the definition of the evil that comes with arrogance and sort of not caring about that person because that person apart. And then you you also got to wonder about your role in society as well. But then you look and say, you know, you're doing something that you don't really believe is the right thing to do to this patient for the purposes of remuneration. That's kind of that's evil. No, I, I listen. I, I agree with you, but I think unfortunately. It's endemic. You know, I think there are areas, as an example, where I'm at, where, you know, the cost of living is extraordinarily high. And neurosurgeons, as I'm sure you appreciate, have a belief that they should be at the top of the pyramid. 
and and that translates into money. And uh, if you can't, uh, you know, buy a home, and here, you know, if you want to call it a nice home, is typically four to eight million dollars. <laughs> That's a big nut to crack. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I was going to ask you a question. I'd asked you this before, and I'm still going to take a stab at it, which is how do we fix this? <laughs> and do you have any answers? I feel that the compassion part is the key part. And if you start with that, you have better care, more satisfied patients, healthier patients, happier doctors, and help happier systems. And is there a way to reimagine how care is delivered that is not entirely, you know, profit driven? I mean, it's uh, to me, it's ironic that I find it in Honduras where there's broken systems and no social safety net. And I find, I mean, it's, it's clearly not optimal that we're visiting into and it's not it doesn't exist in the country we're going to. But I just look and I go, we should be able to come together to do a better job and solve some of these problems. Well, you know, I think part of it is, to be frank with you, is the nature of our political divisiveness. You know, the nature of politics is one of compromise. And you may not get what you want, but it moves the needle forward, if you will. In the system we have today, there is absolutely no belief that you should ever compromise. And of course, then this leads to two people standing in different corners of the room, not saying anything except saying the other person's wrong. And I think one particular party uh, has a view that, and I, I don't even understand how you get there, which is the government has no responsibility to offer any type of social safety net for anyone. And it ties into this narrative that, one, the reason you haven't been able to afford X, Y, or Z is because you're lazy. Mm -hmm. And it's an incredible brainwashing when you see people who are in abject poverty, I mean, 99% of people do not want to be poor. 99% <laughs> of people, if there was an option, would certainly choose the option to do the right thing, I believe. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you take everything away from them and they have no sense of hope or opportunity, of course, that's when everything uh, falls apart. You know, you mentioned this uh, statement that, well, you know, I operate here on people who are morbidly obese, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sure you experienced the days uh, when everyone smoked and, you know, you're doing spine surgery and you had all of these failures. I think one of the problems is, you know, the nature of the system outside of healthcare. If you have no safety net in terms of childcare, if you have no safety net in terms of educating people about nutrition, if you live in a, effectively a ghetto and the only stores in proximity to you only sell crap and that's all you're exposed to, you know, how do you get out of that? And, and it's a system that is generational, right? Because you know, if somebody grew up in poverty, they have no resources, they're not educated, then they reproduce, then they've just recreated uh, the same experience for the next generation and on and on. And it fascinates me how, as an example, there is no issue paying to incarcerate somebody to the tune of 35 to 50 grand a year. And as you know, based on our population, we have the highest level of incarcerated people per capita in the world. Yet, we don't have enough to pay for meals for children in school who can't afford it. 
or or for early education, which would prevent at, at a fraction of the cost. Exactly. You know, it's it's funny after Hurricane Katrina, and I uh, went to Tulane in New Orleans, but uh, and I'm on the board there. But you know, it's interesting because the system had been set up with no social safety net. And with a lot of the dollars from the government going to pay for ICU beds mm-hmm. <laughs> versus setting up community clinics and decrease the number of ICU beds and to give patients medications for free. I'm sure you've experienced, uh, uh, as an example, patients who come in with hypertension, who are poor, who have a bleed in their head. You know, I had a situation like that, a, a wonderful lady, morbidly obese. Two daughters, also morbidly obese, but the kindest, nicest people in the world, operated on the mother, saved her life after a month in the hospital. She went to rehab, then she went home, and then three months later, she came in with a massive hemorrhage, and the prescriptions I had given her were still in her purse. <laughs> she never, uh, never filled them. Yeah. yeah, because she had no money to pay for them. Sure. And, and so, and this time, of course, I couldn't save her, and she died. My point being, you know, you have conditions like uh, uncontrolled hypertension, congestive heart failure, diabetes, uh, and uh, diabetic ketoacidosis. All of these are easily preventable if you have patient education, right? And if you don't have that, though, this makes up a disproportionate number of people coming to ERs. And as a result, you know, the cost of care is multitudes more than if the preventative care has been done. And that's a fundamental part of the system. Well, unless you sort of start over and say, what are the ways in which we can improve people's lives from not uh, when they come to the hospital, but from childhood on? And, and it's looking through the lens of wellness, not disease, right? And, and that is why the American medical system is ass backwards, right? in my opinion. I completely agree. And I think it would be an, uh, an ideal world where would be for me to be out of a job. <laughs> so I was, I was the last resort and people didn't need me, you know, and I, I look and I see the, the, I guess the way to tie these things together, I'm looking at saying, you know, um, I see where there's this sort of wanton disregard for others and for a lack of empathy and a lack of compassion and looking at people different than you as other and that the same rules don't apply. And then you look and you see this kind of power and control where people who are in power want to assert that control and tell people what they can and can't do. And it seems largely punitive and it doesn't seem empathetic or compassionate. And I feel the same thing kind of happens in healthcare that's happening in our general society. I do feel that it's not really that you... You don't have to do anything special to perceive what's really going on. You have to open your eyes and open your heart. And if you do, it's really obvious. And it's there all the time. And so I feel that in in my own experience of going through the grief of, of the loss of my sister and her husband and seeing just, it was like pulling the veil off of um, what it is like to be a patient, how terrified people are, how how absolutely in need of help and, and assistance and, and um, support they are. And then you realize that <laughs> we're all like that. We all need each other. We all need that support. We need that kindness. And the only way to start to change how we do things, how we treat each other, how we interact is to have that kind of level of kindness. And I hope, you know, it's funny because I talk about building communities. I look and I say, well, 
you hear about all the negative, you know, energy, um, nasty Facebook communities. Well, also there are positive ones. You know, I'm talking with you. I've met other people who have a similar spirit who say enough already. We can't continue down this path. This is a path of destruction and we have to really change how we do that. So in a sense, I would say that grief does connect us and it certainly has kind of uh, lit a fire under me. And I think it's also interesting that once you start paying attention, I'm curious what you think of this, but once you start paying attention to compassion and need for compassion, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Like, you know, it's it's out, it's everywhere, and you have to, you have to pay attention, you have to care, or you're not true to yourself, you're not kind to yourself, you're not tr- true to, your, to others, and, and you, it doesn't work. Well, I think you're absolutely right. The problem is, as you know, I, I mean, uh, 30 to 50% of medical students and physicians either are depressed on medication or are thinking of quitting the profession uh, because of many of these things. You know, when you're, you are trained to do something to help people and you feel that you're not able to do so based on the constraints created by the system, it is demoralizing and uh, very, very hard. And yes, on the one hand, you can argue that, look, each of us in our own way can contribute to making the world a better place. You know, you were talking about interacting with patients. I mean, I know in my own practice, uh, when I meet a patient, I greet them. I will shake their hand as they're talking to me. I lean forward into them. Periodically, I'll touch them. I will at least give the impression that I'm not in a rush. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And these are critically important because when a patient comes to see you, they're terrified and they're not even listening to what you're saying. You know, it's like Maya Angelou said, it doesn't matter what you say, it's how you made them feel. <laughs> and and when, when you make people feel cared for, first of all, that ha- results in a dramatic improvement in how they respond to surgery. I even have told our residents many times that my success as a neurosurgeon is not only due to the sophisticated technology we have, but it is also due to being kind, empathetic, and compassionate. You know, when somebody is less fearful, they don't uh, stimulate their sympathetic nervous system, which, as you know, decreases your wound healing. They need less pain medication. They typically get out of the hospital sooner because so much of our interaction with another human being has to do with the stage we set for them in our interaction with them. Mm-hmm. It's true. Yeah. So uh, obviously we've solved the system. <laughs> yeah. that, that was easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, that's the sad thing is, and uh, is you know, how do we create a more just system? And you know, it's not one of we're treating undocumented immigrants. It's how are we treating everyone? Mm-hmm. And the fact that someone is not us, or if we look at, as an example, if you examine the immigration situation, and specifically I'm talking about Mexican or uh, individuals coming across the border from Mexico, you know, the reality is if you look at their contribution, it is a net positive. Now, this is not to say there shouldn't be a system in which people can immigrate here legally or have some sort of work thing. But overall, if you examine all the numbers, they are a huge net positive to our system. And they have less criminality than many of the individuals in our own country. It's also fascinating to me if you look at the southern states where there's a lot of conversations about many of these things, 
typically these places have the highest levels of divorce, the highest levels of teenage pregnancy, the highest levels of unemployment, and the highest expenditure in terms of healthcare costs. And they are a net drain on the rest of the country. And it's sort of it's a fascinating narrative where these groups oftentimes will promote that they somehow are better than or their insights are, are more important. And it's a sad statement where they've been brainwashed, frankly. And this is not to say that uh, the other uh, party is truth. But that being said, there is misleading and then there is lying. So I'm sure I'll get into trouble or some comments from those things. <laughs> but I've made them all before. <laughs> so maybe you can just tell us, getting back to our original topic, and, and in some ways we have been talking about grief, and this is the grief and sadness of the manner in which our healthcare system is so destructive to the practitioners and actually to the patients. And, and I would suggest that that reality is a cause of grief among so many of us. But what can you tell individuals who are facing really the reality of a loss of control or the perception that many of us have that we are in charge? How do you deal with that at the end of the day, when you realize very clearly you are not in charge, and in some ways, events occur which are not deserved by people, for good and for bad, obviously. There's a um, statement by Susan David, which goes something like this. It says that life's beauty is inextricably linked with its fragility. You know, illusion of control is purely that. It is an illusion. We don't have control. In fact, so many of our processes and behaviors are designed to make us feel that we have more control than we do. So recognizing that we don't have control, which is also hard for the, you know, egocentric neurosurgeon, recognizing that you don't, you really can't control things, that you really, you do not have, you're kind of a passenger, you know, and, and um, being kind I find like the mindfulness stuff and the and the you know being available, being interested, being present in the moment, being supportive of patients is huge, you know, and um, letting them know that you care. And as we, as we said, you know, unfortunately, we cannot solve these bigger system issues. They they go beyond us. I have. I wish that I had a path for solving all these problems. I don't see it. I don't see a very easy solution. But I do find that when I am feeling good about what I'm doing and the contribution I'm making, I think it's genuinely that I am actually doing good. And so that I, I feel that kind of leaning in and being present and being available and being uh, committed and compassionate and helping people on their journeys, because ultimately we're both going to die too, right? You know, we're not, no one's immortal. All these things that we're talking about are going to affect every one of us. And I thank my sister for giving me that. Um, I wish she didn't die, but I also I thank her for for opening my eyes to life because life and death is also kind of what makes it beautiful and special and unique and something to be cherished. Actually, uh, just to comment on that, you know, I tell people that let's see how this quote goes of mine. It's very profound. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's for the first two uh, or quarter uh, century 
as a physician, my goal was to prevent death. The last decade has been to understand what prevents a person from truly living. One of the things that I have found is that oftentimes as physicians, if we have a patient who's terminally ill, we run away as fast as we can. Right, exactly. And turn away from them because fundamentally, it's an acceptance of our own failure. We were not able to fix them. And I tell people, though, one of the greatest gifts that I've had is actually not doing that. I actually work with the palliative care team. I think I'm the only neurosurgeon whoever has. And I go out of my way to stay connected uh, with patients and to be there and even to hold their hand as they die. And, you know, the insights you get in that type of deep personal connection uh, for me is very, very profound. And I think that this gets back to emotional agility, you know, being able to sit in these very difficult situations, as well as very joyful situations, but not get lost in either, and realizing that each of them offers us incredible benefit and insight is really something that, for me, I have found very powerful and helpful. Well, I just went and did a course, something called PSEP, uh, Palliative Care Education and Practice at, um, through Harvard Medical School. And it was and it was basically doing, I had this kind of similar experience to you, which is like, I'm the only neurosurgeon here. I'm the only surgeon here. Do I even really belong here? And I found it to be so uplifting and so powerful to learn the skills of palliative medicine. And most of what I learned was how to communicate effectively, you know, training and communication, having workshops where we had actual actors and we would kind of do dry runs of, of conversations. And so it's the opposite of pulling away and, and, you know, we pretend that we're busier than we are so that we can avoid the painful and uncomfortable emotions and kind of move on to the next patient. And taking that moment and saying, no, I'm not moving on, I'm actually going to stay here and be present and this whole notion also that, you know, that takes time. It actually doesn't take that much time it, to, to, to be available, to be present, to be caring, to, to cry. It, it doesn't take time. It takes a willingness to be available to that person. And I have found that such a powerful gift. And I'm working with our health system and with our CEO of our health system to create more palliative care in the acute care setting, because that, that seems to be a big gap, right? Once you're diagnosed and you're off to hospice or you're going, you know, for long-term care, those things are, are, we do a fairly, we do an okay job with that. But it's the, you know, recognizing how it's so strange in the hospital, like you go from, okay, we're doing everything to all of a sudden we're doing, we're not going to do anything and we're switching to palliative care. It's like, why is that such a dichotomous decision? That should be made all along. You know, you should have palliative care and those resources available all through the illness, and then you can transition when the time comes. But bringing palliative care in earlier, I think, is crucial for better better medical care. Well, I would call it not palliative care. I would call it simply a compassionate care team. <laughs> and, and what should happen, I think, is that there should be uh, an intermediary, such as a nurse practitioner, who meets every patient when they come to the hospital greets them, explains the situation, and then someone visits the patient through the course of their hospitalization to ensure that they 
have a sense that someone cares. Because as you know, I, I mean, I can't tell you the number of times where I'll go see a patient. And it's interesting because oftentimes I'm the consultant, yet I'm the guy who's sitting there explaining things to all the family members. And, uh, and of course, all of that takes time versus ensuring that we have this team of people who actually go around, and that's their only job. And, you know, there was this study that was done with, uh, I'm sure you've experienced these people who, you know, repeatedly show up in the ER, and oftentimes they have drug, alcohol issues, they're homeless, et cetera. And it was interesting, at one institution, they assigned a compassionate nurse to these people so that they were with them, they greeted them, they offered them resources, and it cut down, I think, over half in the number of admissions because the people aren't needing to be in the hospital. They need to simply communicate with somebody and know that somebody cares. And I think that's one of the tragedies, too, is that we need to become a caring community more than we need to become a transactional community. And it's strange. We're all, we're all uh, wired in, and yet we're all so lonely. <laughs> It's a, That's how, that, I think Albert Schweitzer said that, if I recall, actually. Since we're sharing quotes, I want to give you, this is a quote that I uh, played out in Honduras, and it was, it's from Mother Teresa, and it says, and I think it's very powerful, and it talks, it gets to the whole team thing, which is, I can do things you cannot, you can do things I cannot, together we can do great things. And I think that's, if you have a team that really supports and works together and is genuinely committed to that compassionate care, you you knock it out of the park. You know, everything everything is, is finally so much better. No, I, I think that's absolutely correct. Here's the Albert Schweitzer quote, the exact quote. It says, uh, we're all so much together, but we're all dying of loneliness. And uh, I think um, that's very true. And again, uh, just to emphasize another point, oftentimes we actually forget our own agency. You know, we think, Everything that occurs around us, we have no ability to influence or impact. And over and over again, uh, it's been demonstrated that we have much more agency than we think. We just have to understand that we do. And I think that's very important. Well, Jody, what else do you have to say that's profound in closing here to our listeners? Um, this has been a great pleasure. I think that the caring community is is real and attainable. I think that it means going to medical schools and rethinking how we do things and how we deliver that care. I think we have a responsibility to each other, to ourselves, and to those who have come before us and died to do a better job. And so I feel maybe more optimistic. I don't know if, if you're optimistic or not, but I, I feel optimistic that we can change things in a profound way by really uh, connecting and communicating compassionately with each other. No, I totally agree with you. And I thank you for spending part of your day with me. And I'm sure our listeners will uh, enjoy this conversation. So thank you again. Well, this has been really fun. Thanks a lot. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. Dot com.